Ho, ho, ho. It's Cricket Messier on the Top Order podcast this week in cricket. Before we wrap up for the year, Bordy and I just wanted to jump on and record a quick This Week in Cricket to cover off the England-Pakistan series, which was monumentally record-breaking, if I could use those three words together. And then we'll talk a little bit about Australia, South Africa, a below-average pitch at the Gabba, or a below-average batting performance. We'll unpick all of that on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, Bordy, I'm going to throw to myself, and I think we're going to talk England-Pakistan first. Um, I can barely contain my uh, my glee, I guess, at a 3-0 series victory, the first time that that has happened in Pakistan for the England team. So I go back to, I think, the early 2000s, England winning in the dark in Karachi, my last fond memory of Test cricket victory, I think, on those shores. I guess from an outsider's perspective, and taking into account the thing that's always around the corner, and that's the ashes. Um, what do you make of that England performance across not only the first couple of tests, which were pretty close, uh, given you know a sporting declaration and a, a close second test match as well, but this was a comprehensive victory by England in the third test match. What are your thoughts from a, an Australian perspective? Well, let's let's touch on England first, because for all of the apparent risk-taking that the England batters in particular um, take in their efforts to, you know, go at four and a half, five, six and over, whatever the run rate happens to be across any given batting performance in the six that they put on in Pakistan, they're remarkably consistent from an outcome perspective. I mean, you can say what you want about whether or not players should go on and get big hundreds having got a, having got starts. I mean, Harry Brook has been a revelation at number five for England um, ben Folks came in and made 60 in the first innings in this test match. So it seems to be that they've got a bit of a Midas touch at the moment, the England, England selectors and the England setup, because whoever they bring in seems to perform at an elite level for them with the bat and also with the ball. We saw uh, Rehan Ahmed make his de- debut for England. I think he looked pretty good. Uh, so it seems that everything is is coming up um, coming up chocolates for England at the moment. And, and whatever they turn to, they seem to be successful. And it's uh, amazing how consistent England are performing uh, across all of that apparent risk-taking. You would think that by now, having played 10 test matches in the Stokes ball era, that we would see, I don't know, 50-50, 60-40, something like that. But they're, they're batting 90% at the moment in terms of, you know, 9 out of 10 victories against quality opposition. Uh, I don't think Pakistan have ever been beaten 3-0 in a test series at home before. So you really have to look at this now as being something that is not a flash in the pan, but is a genuine shift in the way that Test cricket is played um, and the way that Test cricket can be played at an, an elite level that we've just not seen before. Yeah, Bordy, it's kind of it's hard to disagree with you, but I'm always tempered by that internal pessimism around an England cricket team. Having grown up in the 90s, had a little bit of success in that kind of Michael Vaughan era and then, you know, capped off. I, I don't want to talk about it, but might as well mention the 2010-2011 Ashes where we won on away soil for the first time in a, a long time. And, and that seemed to be the sort of, you know, the, the pinnacle that we talked about. But um, yeah, nine out of 10 victories. And I think the thing that really brought it home for me is people have been asking whether or not this can continue and, and whether or not, um, you know, this will be sustainable. And I guess, you know, 10 test matches isn't 
a sample size that you can, you know, really, um, you know, hang your hat on. But we've done it against some pretty decent attacks in pretty uh, pretty varied conditions. I, I look at the New Zealand series this summer against arguably a couple of the best new ball bowlers in world cricket in Tim Southey and Trent Bolt. Um, India then came to England shores for a test match. We, you know, we know the quality they've got across their bowling attack. And then to do it on a way soil on two spinning pitches, we've kind of we've kind of done it. Um, and yeah, yeah, look, I guess, you know, it's really just going to be now whether or not they can do that across an Ashes series, you know, and, and potentially uh, South Africa away will be a test again against their pace attack on, on South African soil as well. But yeah, look, not too many, not too many sort of cracks, I think, in that armour. Other, other than who do they leave out when they get their big guns back in Johnny Bairstow, potentially Jofra Archer coming back into the reckoning and, Again, what are they going to do around that sort of spin option as well? Uh, you mentioned Ryan Ahmed, um, limited sample size, but uh, seven wickets in that game. Joe, uh, sorry, Jack Leach, um, averaged 44 across the series, which, you know, pretty comparable with the Pakistan spinners, albeit a better economy rate. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where, where they go there. And we, we talked a little bit about Ben Folks and the gloves, but uh, he didn't do anything more than he could have done scoring 64 in his only um, outing, although yeah, his strike rate stands out like a sore thumb on that list of England batters. I think striking just above 50 or something like that, which is normally pretty respectable. But uh, in a series where pretty much every other strike rate starts with a 90, um, that's probably the, the one thing when you kind of read down their stats columns that looks a bit out of place. Mm. Yeah, let's touch on those bowlers because for for England, the real unsung heroes here of this whole Stokes ball, Bears ball era has been their bowling attack. Uh, England have taken 20 wickets in nine tests out of 10. And I don't know the last time that I can remember England consistently taking 20 wickets across different sets of conditions. Yes, England's seam attack always strong at home and as they should be. And, and with Anderson and Broad and Mark Wood and Curran, et cetera, et cetera, you would expect them to be strong. But here in Pakistan, they've taken 60 wickets in three tests, and that's something that Australia wasn't able to do when they toured. Lots of teams go to Pakistan and don't find that level of success with their bowlers. So it's a real kudos to that England attack um, and unleashed again by the ability to put fielders in attacking positions for long periods of time, uh, find ways with uh, innovative fields, seven short covers, two leg gullies, whatever it happens to be, England are finding ways to maintain an attacking posture for longer periods of time in the game. And it's giving them the opportunity to say, well, we don't mind going at four because we could score at five. Uh, so we're quite happy to concede a boundary and over if that's what you want to do, Mr. Mr. Better, uh, because we know that we're going to put the ball in good areas and ask questions of you uh, almost every over of, of your batting innings. So it's, it's a massive piece of kudos to Ben Stokes from a captaincy point of view and for his bowlers for backing him up. And you have a look at those economy rates. I mean, Joe Root went at fours, but in that uh, Pakistan first innings, they were even able to keep the economy rates mostly below three and a bit. I mean, Rehan Ahmed was the most expensive other than Joe Root, and he went at 3.2. So, you know, England have been able to 
to combine good, decent economy with the ability to attack and attack and attack with the ball. Um, and that's what's going to be relentless for Australia when they face off in the Ashes, because you would expect that Australia would produce um, wickets when it, when it's down under, and England would potentially produce wickets in England that suit a little bit of seam bowling. Um, so it's going to be interesting what the wickets look like in England, what they look like when England come to Australia, and whether or not they're good batting wickets or or they're good bowling wickets. And you know that's going to be a real litmus test for England's batters. But England's bowlers will be licking their chops because they'll be going great. We can bowl Australia out for under two hundred and fifty because we can attack them for eighty overs. And then we get a new ball, and then we're going to attack them for another 80 overs if we need to. So, oh, look, I'm really looking forward to this Ashes series. I think England has breathed a lot of fresh air into Test cricket, and I just cannot wait for this for this Ashes series. Um, you know, we've got summer in, in Australia to look forward to. We'll talk about South Africa, Australia, but it's just wetting my appetite, this England performance. It really is. Yeah. Look, just touching on the bowlers really, really briefly, I think the thing that stood out for me was the the difference really between the two seam attacks and the differential in terms of economy rates, but also strike rates and the ability to actually take wickets. And what's really telling as well for me is that James Anderson and Stuart Broad, Stuart Broad obviously not on this tour, have been criticised a little bit, um, maybe just in the press, um, but it's kind of gone into that sort of Stokes and, and Basball sort of um, era and certainly some of the rhetoric around it that, you know, they've protected their average potentially and, um, bold, relatively dry. What they're able to do in this series, particularly James Anderson, uh, Ollie Robinson, and, and even Mark Wood, was bowl at economy rates. James Anderson, 2.2, Mark Wood, 2.7, and Ollie Robinson, 2.4 something, while still taking really, really key wickets. So, um, you know, that really, really bodes well that they're able to not only uh, find a way to take the 20 wickets that they need to, but They've also been able to do it without deliberately trying to hang the ball outside off stump for long periods or, um, you know, bowl to a, you know, a 7-2 or even, you know, an 8-1 field. They've been able to do it with field set straight um, and really, you know, really frustrate the, uh, yeah, frustrate the the Pakistan uh, batsmen. We shouldn't really finish up on this Pakistan-England series without talking a little bit about a guy retiring from test cricket after 97 tests as a Ali. Um, didn't go out probably in the way that um, he wanted. Lasted a bit longer than Bradman did in his uh, last innings, but only just, I think. Um, but yeah, fantastic record when you actually look at 97 uh, test matches, at an average well over 40. I think as captain the side on occasions as well. So um, yeah, really kudos to uh, to him, although he didn't bow out probably with the victory that he would have wanted for uh, for the side that he's represented for such a long time. Yeah, and just touching on that Pakistan side, I mean, we we got what we expected from their opening bats, really. Um, nothing really new there. But the interesting um, player to come out of the series for me was Sold Shaquille. I think he looks like a likely test cricketer. He's got a great first-class average. I think he averages 50 in first-class cricket. Where he's been outside the Pakistan team until he's turned 26, 27 is a bit of a mystery. But uh, maybe the Black Book's... Uh, in Pakistan aren't as updated as often as mine is, uh, but certainly I didn't have him in my black book of players to watch. Uh, he looks like a likely character. Uh, we've, we've we've unleashed a new spinner in Abra Ahmed for Pakistan, so there's plenty to to like from that perspective. And, and when they get their seam attack back, you know, Shaheen, um, Nasim Shah, etc., um, we're, we're going to see a stronger Pakistan side going forward, I think. And uh, 
it's just a shame that Azhar Ali has, has bowed out when he has. He's been a terrific, terrific servant for Pakistan cricket. But there's a lot to like with that side moving forward. Uh, Shafiq, Masood, Imam al-Haq, Baba Shaquille and Mohamed Rizwan. That's a pretty good middle order. And then you start to get into some all-rounders and bowling options. So there's, there's lots to like for Pakistan cricket going forward. Um, 3-0 uh, doesn't necessarily reflect that they played some pretty good cricket, Pakistan, but I think is the right result given how well England played. Well, look, we've definitely talked a lot about this series. It's been uh, compelling uh, viewing, certainly throughout the course of the start of this New Zealand summer. New Zealand, of course, um, go over to Pakistan. I think they're actually on the ground now already. Um, in, And I think the first test they're going to play is in Karachi, and then they go to, I think they go to Multan after that. Um, we have got an episode in the feed already. Um, that previews that series. Um, Stu um, managed to have a, a chat with one of the uh, yeah one of the guys from uh, Abdullah Haider from uh, the Pakistan Cricket Podcast. So dip into the feed and have a quick look at uh, that preview, which I, I know will go into the runners and riders. We are going to move and talk Australia South Africa. Um, Borley, not often on on your side, but. Dean Elgar doesn't seem to like a lot. He didn't like the concept of baseball and uh, cricket being speeded up in this English summer. He doesn't like a game that's speeded up on a spicy wicket um, in Brisbane. What kind of cricket does Dean Elgar uh, like? You know, he, he, he doesn't want to. Yeah, doesn't want to see runs scored at a massive pace. Doesn't want to see the ball um, favoured over bat. So he, he could be in for a little bit of trouble as this series goes on. But look, fantastic. Uh, test match if you're a bowler, but if you're a batter, you'd be waking up at cold sweats watching the highlights of this game at the Gabba, wouldn't you? Yeah, real Goldilocks pitch the Gabba one, wasn't it? It was really a case of producing exactly the right amount of seam movement to be able to find the edge of the bat uh, rather than produce too much seam movement and go past the outside edge. I think there was enough in that wicket that it put a lot of doubt in batters' minds. And you could see that as soon as a bowling side got their tail up. They were able to take wickets and clumps. And that was really the story of the Test match. Uh, Scott Boland twice uh, took wick, took multiple wickets in an over. Um, you know, South Africa had Australia 20 for four in the second innings. I think Australia had South Africa 20 for four in their first innings on the first day. You know, there was really that ability to take wickets and clumps. I mean, Australia were 20 for three in their first innings as well uh, before Smith and I think that was um, Travis Travis Head rescued the innings with some really positive batting. Um, and if you have a look at it, really, the difference between the two two sides was the positivity of Travis Head. Sure, he managed to get 92 off 96, but he soaked up the first 20 balls and was really circumspect, knew where his off stump was, didn't take any risks, watched the ball closely, and then was able to tell you, to, to take advantage after that. Um, so it just goes to show that you can score runs on a wicket like that, but you have to have a little bit of luck. You also have to have a really good awareness of where your off stump is. A lot of the South African batters were caught uh, behind or were out LBW or bowled because they didn't have a great awareness of, of where their off stump was. They were playing balls that they shouldn't um, and then were getting trapped on balls, not protecting the inside edge of the bat because they were kind of fishing outside off stump a bit. Look, Let's get on to the wicket, Binksy, because it's come in for a lot of criticism. What was your view on the quality of the pitch and whether or not it was as bad as the diabolical, unsafe view that some pundits and players have taken, or it was 
below average? Because I think below average is probably the best feedback you could give for that wicket, right? Yeah, look, it certainly wasn't dangerous. I think there was a couple of balls that did definitely misbehave a little bit. I think when they hit the um, the downslope on one of those divots, I think um, it was Temba Bavuma, I think, caught one in the elbow uh, when he was sort of trying to leave a ball that was just back of a length that reared up a little bit on him. But look, it certainly wasn't dangerous. I think, as you said, the ICC uh, pitch uh, inspector has, has kind of deemed it to be below average. So I think that that means a demerit point for the Gabba. If they clock up a number of those, then um, they get into a little bit more, uh, yeah, a little bit more trouble. But and I think ultimately, as you said, it just favoured the ball that little bit too much. Um, and I guess any test match that finishes in a couple of days, there's got to be either tremendously bad batting from the two sides um, or it's favoured the, the bowling sides with either excessive turn or excessive seam movement. Um, so I, I think, look, it's the right call to have given it that below average rating. We look at some of the other pitches that have, have, have befell that in the recent time. The first test pitch in that England series at Ralph Pindy was given below average because it was actually too far the other way in terms of a, a better batting wicket with almost no pace and carry through to the slip cordon. But I think realistically, it's the batting sides that have got to go and take a little bit of a, a room in your famous uh, Hall of Mirrors um, or Room of Mirrors, I think you call it. Um, and particularly that, you know, South African t- top order, which, you know, really has been blown away twice. Elgar, um, Avea, Van der Dussen just mustering, I think, 18 runs or so in the first innings. Um, and even less than that, I think six or five or six runs between them in the second innings, um, relying very, very heavily, therefore, on that middle order, which whilst Bavuma and Zondo uh, got going a little bit in that second innings, not enough to really make a difference and a dent on on this game. I want to ask you a question. Boxing Day test match coming up at his home ground. Josh Hazelwood, I think, is going to be fit as well. Does Boland get another go um, at the MCG? What, what are the selectors going to do, do you think, throughout the course of uh, this series? Is there a bit of rest and rotation or is the Basball picking your best side uh, coming into things for this MCG Boxing Day test? Yeah, isn't this a conundrum? Uh, has Nathan Lyon got a bit of workload management coming up? Can we play four seamers and Cameron Green? I'm not sure. It's it's a really interesting conundrum. I mean, Scott Boland would be the unluckiest bowler ever to put in a performance like that, and like he has over the last two years, and then miss out on an, on a test, as you say, on his home soil, where last year, this time, he took six for seven. Uh, so it would be very unlucky for him to miss out. But I think it will very much depend on whether or not Josh Hazelwood is fit and whether or not the Australian selectors see fit to tell Mitchell Stark, hey, maybe maybe have a rest here for, for workload management and we'll slot Hazelwood in, give Stark a rest for one test match. Not that he'll want to have a rest, of course. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, look, it's just going to be a desperately unlucky situation for Scott Boland to miss out. I think he's probably done enough that you'd have to say that on form, who would South Africa least want to face? I would say that they'd probably rather face Josh Hazelwood at the moment, which is a funny thing to say, uh, than Scott Boland, because Scott Boland has is, is ripped the heart out of that middle order twice in two test matches, um, even though he only took sort of two for 14 uh, in the second innings. You know, he was really devastating in, bo- in both tests. He asked questions of the batters all the time. And if he finds a little bit of movement, it's always just enough to catch that outside edge. And Australia's slips catching has been really, really good in this series so far. 
I think they should pick Scott Boland, to be honest, because he's just in that good a form. He's irresistible. Uh, and Baldy, any worries in the Australian camp? David Warner going through a little bit of a lean patch and Cameron Green really hasn't um, contributed a, a great deal in uh, recent test match times. I, I think mm. they were talking about how good his gully fielding was. And if I'm being brutally honest, that was about all he contributed during the course of this last uh, last test match. Yeah, that's probably fair. He did catch very well in the gully, but he didn't sit there scorers alight with bat or ball in terms of runs or wickets. Uh, I, I'm not so much concerned about Cameron Green. I think it's a, it's a function of... If you have a look at the test matches that he's played, he looked out of sorts at that first innings of the West Indies test match. He threw his wicket away looking for quick runs. Um, He got 18 off 19 in the first innings and and didn't bat. I don't think he batted in that second innings where Australia were 20 for six or something, whatever they were, chasing chasing the the South African total. So, um, oh, no, he did bat. He batted for two balls, not out, not out naught. Uh, So, yeah, fair enough. I'm I'm not concerned about Cameron Green, though. I am a little bit concerned about what Australia will do with David Warner going forward. He hasn't scored 100 since COVID uh, in the test arena. He, he looks out of sorts now, and he has done for a, for a, little, bit of, um, for a little, little bit of time now. Australia have to persist with him for the rest of the summer, I think. I think it's too early to drop him mid-series. I think what will happen is Australia will let him play out the rest of the summer, He'll play a test match on his home ground in Sydney uh, at the end of the series. Hopefully, Australia will be in a position where they've wrapped up the series by then and David Warner could potentially retire from test cricket on that note uh, and they take somebody else to Pakistan and there's all sorts of permutations on who they might take there. But it is a bit of a concern, I think, the David Warner piece. Kawaj has been solid, but he had two low scores in this test match, uh, 11 and 2. Uh, Manus has come back to earth a little bit against the South African attack, as we thought that he might do. Um, but look, you just have to give credit to the bowlers. I mean, particularly in that second innings, Kagisa Rabada was irresistible. He was he was undefendable. He was just unbelievable. He was all the uns really, uh, Kagisa Rabada. And you just have to give the bowlers credit when they're when they're on fire like that. You're going to get a, a situation, and South Africa experienced it themselves where. You're facing a bowler that just on the day is is too good for you. Um, the challenge with David Warner is, though, that it seems to be happening a lot to him. Um, I hope he can pull a, a big, in, big, big innings out of the fire on Boxing Day or, or in his home test in Sydney, but he's the one that's concerning for me. The rest of the, the, rest of the side is in pretty good shape. Awesome. Well, Bordy, I guess we can just hope for a wicket that actually gives us, I guess, the... Um, the kind of test match that we want to watch over the Christmas period, which is um, probably plenty of entertainment. So we can sit and uh, mop up the turkey and the ham and watch a bit of cricket with a, a couple of hours um, delay um, from a New Zealand perspective uh, in terms of the timings of that test match. And then it, it'll be lined up really, really nicely to then get the uh, get the New Zealand-Pakistan series on the TV as well, which comes at a, a good viewing window. Not to mention, of course, the big bash, which we'll see throughout the Christmas um, period. But, Bordy, I think that just about wraps up our little insert into the Top Order podcast feed. We are all taking a well-deserved break over the Christmas period, but we will be back um, in your feeds to wrap up some of these series as they go on around the world just after the Christmas period. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us here in Auckland. Have a very Merry Christmas and a happy start to 2023. And we'll see you again very soon. Good night.